Super Talk Mississippi media production. Have you been seriously injured? Mama Justice is here for you. Our medical team partners with top-notch doctors, surgeons, therapists, and urologists, ensuring a comprehensive recovery journey. If you've been injured, call Mama Justice today. We're here for you. Howdy, howdy. It's Rhino here, and I wanted to say thank you for listening to Middays with Gerard Gibbert here on Super Talk Mississippi. Get ready, get ready to go beyond the headlines and join a meaningful conversation with people from around the state. You're listening to Middays with Gerard Gibbert here on Super Talk Mississippi. Everyone and welcome to Midday Super Talk Mississippi. I'm your host Gerard Gibbert, along with Rhino in the Element Well Studio, guiding you through the middle of your day with facts, fodder, and fine music on this Friday, y'all. Still a delightful one out there. I think there's oh, yeah. a little precipitation scheduled to enter the state later on today, right? Yeah, I want to say out. it's not till later tonight, and it it will be relatively quick and pretty light okay well good we're deserving of some nice weather i would say i tell i tell you where it was rather tumultuous and that was in the courtroom where old fanny willis oh my gosh i gotta tell you i was riveted uh i tuned in it's like a couple of hours seems like they covered it live maybe it wasn't quite that long man the combative willis <laughs> It was uh, quite the quite the development. The defense, of course, arguing that Ms. Willis, the Fulton County District Attorney, in her office should be disqualified and honestly removed from prosecution of the former president. They uh, they maintain they contend that she benefited financially from a relationship with the lead prosecutor, at being Mr. Nathan Wade. That's who she hired to handle this case. This still was bizarre. I gotta tell I've never seen that in a court before. It was uh, very pointed and direct Not questioning. In a real court, no. <laughs> That's true. It was more like a court drama that comes on prime time and has a doon doon sound on it. I agree. Mr. Wade, her uh, her boyfriend there allegedly called Miss Willis an independent strong woman who insisted that she pay her way. So the deal here is that they went on a bunch of these lavish vacations, and she was to reimburse him. She maintains she did all cash. She says she carries around thousands of dollars of cash, but has no receipts or no documents, no evidence, no uh, of these transactions, these exchanges of cash. She said, yeah, for many years I keep cash in my house. Thousands of dollars is what she said in her house. I ain't buying this whole deal. I just got to tell you that. And then there was a timeline that was laid out that it, it, it conflicts between the two when they testify about their their timeline. She pushed back pretty hard against the uh, defense lawyers. That would be for the president. 
She said, you're spreading lies. It's all lies. I'm not on trial, no matter how hard you try to put me on trial. And it was the judge who admonished her numerous times and and basically informed her, if you don't cooperate and answer the questions, we're going to strike your entire dang testimony, is what the judge said there numerous times. So it was not playing around, essentially. This whole deal, I think, went totally in favor of the former president and is falling apart with respect to Ms. Willis. It doesn't really matter at this point, I would argue, whether or not there's truly a case to be made that the president interfered somehow in the election in 2020 in the state of Georgia. David on the ceasefire text line points out another just facet to the drama of yesterday. Usually when you're an attorney, especially a high-profile attorney, one of the things you pride yourself on is your attention to detail. Yeah. Except Miss Willis had her dress on backwards the entire time for her testimony. Are you serious? I mean, I'm looking at it. Zipper in the front. That is a zipper. It's not designed to be worn with the zipper in the front. Well, don't we need to see the back of it to come to that conclusion? People have found it, the back of it, okay. on the Internet, okay. where you could buy an exact replica of that dress, Okay, and it's designed to be worn zipper in the back, well, sure. bow in the front. Well, that's a typical dress, is you're going to have the zipper in the back. Sometimes my wife uh, has these uh, these gowns that I'll have to help her with, with the zipper in the back and the little uh, hooks at the top. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I'm, I'm looking at it right now. I clearly do see the zipper. In the front there, I, I just, I guess, never paid attention to it quite that closely. But if I, if you blow it up a little bit, you can see it. Uh, you know, all the photos I've seen are a little small. Yeah, that's uh, ridiculous. That's, uh, that would indicate to me, and she did, uh, before I say this, she did appear to be quite nervous, I thought, when she first came in the courtroom. Nervous little, or agitated? Well, maybe a little both. Okay, maybe that maybe her agitation was manifesting and being a little jittery, a little jumpy as she was at first. But she sure enough snapped back at uh, the defense counsel. There ain't no doubt about that. And again, the judge uh, jumped on her, counseled her, <laughs> scolded her. I would say a bit. Wow. Uh, I so I don't know what's going to happen with this deal. It it's. It stinks to me, honestly. The, the testimony didn't seem, in some cases, honest. You know, it's just an opinion. It, I can't. I don't have any data in front of me to to really corroborate anything they said or refute anything they said. It's just an opinion. It just seems shaky uh, at a minimum. So we'll see. I guess where all that goes. Just not sure at this point. Of course, we shared with you yesterday that the court in New York has determined that former President Trump's case involving hush money to a porn star will take place. The trial will take place on March the 25th, I believe, is the scheduled date for that trial. So the former president, they have loaded him up with all kinds of legal issues, and you can't help but think that's because they don't want him on the ballot. They're doing everything they can to figure out a way to keep him off the ballot for fear that he could actually win. But 
how is that possible if the election is 100% rigged and it doesn't really matter if he's on the ballot or not? Just being devil's advocate a little bit there, why would that matter? Because they can cause to win whomever they want to. Well, lots of... uh, uh, lots of details yet to be <laughs> disclosed and lots of events in front of us related to this uh, and Mr. Trump's uh, various legal matters that he's having to deal with. Wow. Uh, it's Yep, he's right in the middle of a campaign, and he's still campaigning very effectively at this point. Although if you're checking the polls, the polls show that the gap between the former president and the cur- current president has narrowed considerably. It's uh, depending on which poll you look at, but looking at the RCP average, he he shows up about two points now. That's in the um, of course the popular vote means nothing. He being Mr. Trump uh, in the swing states as well, which is where it matters. Once again, that gap has narrowed in polls. And looking at the RCP average, when you just essentially uh, apply an average and compute an average of a number of polls so as not to rely too heavily on one that might be might be kind of tilted in one direction in terms of the people they poll. We'll see. On this day, February the 16th, 1724, this goes back a long time, Christopher Gadsden is born. Well, you may recognize the last name Gadsden because he is the one that designed the Gadsden flag, the Don't Tread on Me flag. It's got a a yellow background with a rattlesnake and the words Don't Tread on Me still used prominently today. Don't step on snake. Right. Don't step on the old snake. I thought, uh, honestly, I've always felt like that's Pretty good metaphorical representation for the meaning intended. 1776. I thought it was considered a hate symbol nowadays. Well, in certain circles it is, because you know free speech is considered violence. You're you're a violent, radical individual if you hoist that flag, right? You got that shown, displayed anywhere. Yeah, that, but... It's the same old thing. But, you know, burning down a building or or hurting someone, even shooting, killing someone, snuffing out a life, well, that's just excused as free speech. They they have an excuse for that. There's a reason for that. That's how how upside down things are. He uh, was appointed Brigadier General over South Carolina's militia, 1776, when the British tried to invade Charleston in June of that year. Uh, General uh, Moultrie repelled the attackers from Sullivan's Island. Gadsden and his regiment built an escape bridge to get off the island, and Gadsden paid for it. It's not often you hear the words escape bridge. That's true. In the same sentence. <laughs> that's true. True, true. But 1776, that's how you had to do it. Uh, the attack was repelled. The British didn't come back for three years after that. The Gadsden flag, the designer of that was uh, born on this day. How about that? In 1724. When we come back in the Element Well studio, it's Nellie Neal, the garden mama. At 1120, Caleb Sailors from the News Department, Commissioner Willie Simmons at 1205. Check it out. Let's do this. The talk that keeps Mississippi talking. 
Middays with Gerard Gibbert. Let's get on with it. On Super Talk Mississippi. in the Element Well studio. We appreciate you joining us. Nellie Neal, the Garden Mama, now our guest in the Element Well studio, the host, of course, of Weekend Gardening. Uh, Garden Mama, always good to see you. It's wonderful to be here, Gerard. I will tell you that they have named us the Garden Mama Show in the interim, and and that's a very happy move for okay. me. But we are still on the weekend. Okay. So what what's going on? How did your container beauties make it through all of that crazy cold weather? They didn't. Oh, Ex- except uh, <laughs> the uh, the pansies, the pansies and snapdragons, yeah, and some bit. of the dianthus um, survived it. But uh, I, I was doing well with the geraniums. I was so excited. Maybe they'll make it through because you know they they go through kind of that downturn. Uh, at the end of the summer, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, but they often but, can come back, but and they not come always. back right mm-hmm, in the fall, and they mm-hmm. didn't. They were beautiful all fall, and then as soon as that rather um, uh, cold weather the came untimely through, untimely event. Yeah, <laughs> that we so. didn't, none of us cared for. My lettuce didn't like it either. Okay, so it was kind of a scorch. But as you say, the pansies and the snapdragons yeah. and dianthus and those things are doing fine. Larkspurs, you know, yeah. all of those babies are doing great. A lot of people asking about uh, are we out of this drought? Out. And in fact, we are just barely out of the drought. Okay, and that's very good news from all the rain we've from, had. From all the rain that we've had, and our 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 cumulative numbers. You know, everything's relative, particularly like drought. Yeah. My friends on the West Coast say, well, even when you all had a drought, you had more rain than we have in six months. Well, yes, but we're we're accustomed to a different dynamic, a different environmental dynamic. Lots of people looking for how to replace that tree that croaked. And sometimes it's the Indian hawthorn shrubs that just got devastated by first drought, then freeze, you know, and they're not going to come back. See them everywhere. Especially if they're in the front yard. I say let yeah. them go. Yeah. They're just, <laughs> let's, I mean, they're put just something else to look at out there. They're brittle twigs. Yeah. A and collection not, and not of pretty. them everywhere. And even if we spray painted them some bright color, I don't think we would <laughs> like their effect. So I, uh, I think it's time to think about other stuff. Laura Pedlam also mm-hmm. uh, it took it. Some uh, took it pretty pretty rough. Yeah. Um, I have I have three refugee Laura Pedlams. They were in a tree form at one point, and they were also in another bed at another point, and I've propagated them a couple of times. They're still alive, but they really look tired. <laughs> they look yeah. like they've been through a long winter, so I'm hopeful there'll be flowers, but I don't know. Yeah. They may have to go another – we may have to go another route on them. My spireas, the Japanese spireas, have taken a bit of a hit, but okay. they are already leafing out again, as are things like hydrangeas and whatnot. Yeah. Well, I've got uh, Prince William. Uh, Spireus, oh, please, yeah. Prince William, and of course they go dormant and they shed uh, during the cold months. They'll, they'll and then lose they a little back. and then they come back. They come again. back. I think they're. I mean, I've I've kind of checked the the branches. They mm-hmm. seem fine. Mm-hmm. You know, something else you see uh, a lot are the um, the magnolias, especially the ornamental magnolias mm. that really got devastated. Tough stuff. Really something. And I, you know, normally plant them in, of course, uh, an arrangement of three and. 
I've got a, 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 a three planted on the side of my driveway. Two are doing fine, thriving. One mm-hmm. didn't survive, mm-hmm. and I, I guess I attribute that uh, to the drought. Although well, I kept we them have, mitigated. We have such a we, we had such a wet winter last year that if they got their, if their feet got too wet, if the root zone got too wet, they might have gone through the drought better. Okay. But they might have gone through it. You know what I mean? If, yeah. if the one is in the low spot and it didn't make it, then we can figure that it, it just could not recover from the wet and then the drought and then the cold and then the heat and all the other things that happened last year. I do see an awful lot of things like Leland cypress and the, the big cypress juniper type things, yeah. the bigger ones of that category, that just – are going to have to be replaced because yep. they are not alive. Uh, I've got a, a collection of three in the corner, rear corner of my yard that uh, planted when we moved into the house 15 years ago, and they've since grown up. They're probably 20 feet high, 15 feet wide. Mm-hmm. I mean, they're beautiful specimens, and one just completely turned brown. Mm-hmm. Had to remove mm-hmm. it here recently. The other two have some brown uh, branches in them, uh, and I'm, I'm going to cut them out. Hopefully they will survive. Uh, the cryptomeria, too. Yeah, which, the cryptomerias as well. All of those in that conifer group yeah. have had a tough go. And if, if we end up with just a few browned-out spots, then certainly what we want to do is prune them, because then if they occur again, we know we've got another problem, which it may be spider mites. Okay. We may have, you know, it, it may or may not be related because the trees are in stress. They're vulnerable to a lot of other problems. Speaking of which, the pine trees all over the place. Oh, dear. I, yeah, I, um, I saw that uh, my county of Madison, I believe, is, is seeking uh, some disaster relief funding mm-hmm, mm-hmm. to take the trees out. There are so many that need to be removed. For fear of the safety around the roads, yes, that they're just going to exactly. ultimately going to fall, and they could fall on a road or on, oh, a, yeah. on a motorist. Oh, yeah, absolutely. The, when, when the pine trees are lifted, they are particularly vulnerable with storms, bad conditions, the, the earth both swelling and then shrinking from drought pulls those roots hard and when they settle back down it is almost as if they set up the lighthouse to tell the insects to come and get me and that's Mm. where of course the boring insects get into the top of the tree and you see them all browned out at the top that's not going to stop on its own and it doesn't usually stop even if you try to get it to stop because the trees are so weak at that point yeah and and it we're going to see a lot of loss i hope they're able to get whatever kind of funding they need to do that but i also hope that people don't just start frankly going out and injuring themselves by trying to do it themselves because it's a lot of work those trees are tall they're taller than you think they are yeah no (laughs) doubt i I lost one uh only one and um had it removed i think that's what happened it got stressed out from the drought then the beetles attacked it Mm -hmm. and um i've always felt like and i guess heard and perhaps you can comment on this that that if you don't address that and remove that tree that once they're devoured that one they just move to the next one yes they're, they're very happy to take over any pine tree in, round, in the range of where they are, and they do multiply. So they're always looking for another food source. Sadly, the next the tree next to yours, next to the one that's already sick, is probably going to get worn out, and they're going to go to the next one. And it, it's a problem. So it's, if you take one out that they've just com- completely obliterated, does that mitigate and reduce that risk of them moving on to the next one or it's not? It's kind of like rolling the dice. Okay. It, it might. But it might not. Okay. That that's another reason for removing the damage, so you can see whether it's proceeding. I see. You know, and then six months from now, I, one of my classic pieces is if, when you get into a house and you've got a landscape, take pictures of it, and then five years from now, or two years, or whatever's whenever you can remember, take another set of pictures. And if you have those over time, for instance, in that fifteen-year span that you've been in the house. 
sadly you would also you would see how beautifully things grew and then you would see how sadly they they didn't and unfortunately if we don't recognize those things then we don't know we end up sometimes people will buy a house that has been way over planted and has been there for years and they want me to tell them what to cut down well the first answer is what bloom this year wait a year all these things that you have to do but sometimes things are encroaching on the house or they're over the driveway and you just have to do a little bit of that sort of work we're going to see a lot of that this spring okay well, of course, as, as far as foundation plantings um, around homes and so forth, uh, various varieties of, of hollies are very are very popular. Mm-hmm. And it's kind of hit and miss on, on uh, how they fare Some are damaged the and some are not. Yeah. There, there's, there are, generally speaking, oddly, it, doesn't, it seems counterintuitive, but the smaller leafed hollies did more dam- had got suffered more damage than the large leaf hollies, okay. which you wouldn't think. But hmm. there's such tough leaves that may, that may have something to do with okay. it. Or because we've grown those varieties for so long, they've just gotten used to being in this kind of up and down you know, weather yeah. that we have. Well, my big Christmas tree-shaped pruned Mary Nell hollies did fine. Love that. They're beautiful. beautiful. And, mm-hmm. I, and I like that shape, that mm-hmm. sort of conical mm-hmm. shape. Did great. You know, got a cluster of three on the right side of my house. Got uh, a big one in my backyard. It's, it's probably now 30 feet high, beautiful. which is really big. And it's mm-hmm. beautiful. And it's mm-hmm. thriving and it's fine. But some of the, my Clearas, just it, mature Clearas, just checked out. Mm-hmm. Had to replace mm-hmm. them. We don't always know why that happens, but we do know that in a year, I've, I've seen two different surveys of shrubs across the southeast, things like Clearas, Pittosporums, you know, the, the ones we see all the time. And there's about a 30 percent loss hmm. across the southeast. And that's okay. that's one reason why we are seeing so many more entire garden centers full of shrubs right now, okay. full of trees, you know, yeah. because it's time to Got do to that. Replace. It's time yeah. to do that work. And frankly, even if it's alive and you want to stick it in the backyard, that's fine. But don't give yourself something to come home and drive in your driveway and see that, that you just don't know if it's alive. That's really – it's the same reason if you're only going to irrigate something, irrigate your front yard. You know, because then at least you have a nice view when you get in. Your neighbors will still talk about you, but maybe not as much. You know? So what do we need to be doing now uh, mm, from a gardening perspective? Right we now got about it's, a minute left it's planting here. potatoes, pruning roses – Planting those roses, planting your shrubs and trees, get to it. And That's right. This is the time to prune roses, right? Right now, exactly. Yeah, February is what I've always been yep. told. That's the yep. time to I do it. I have the pricks on my fingers right now. From <laughs> so that. how much should you cut them back? If it's a landscape rose, take yeah. it back by about a third. Okay, a mm-hmm. third. Okay, mm-hmm. good no advice. More. Thank you, sir. Appreciate it, Garden Mama. Thanks for coming on, and Y'all congratulations. See you then. New show name is? Thank you. The Garden Mama Show, 8 a.m. Love it. Coming right back, folks, in the Element Well Studio. Super Talk Mississippi. Okay, now you have a good one.
Welcome back, everyone. It's middays. Had to let Alive and Kicking play a little bit by Simple Minds. Appreciate that, Rhino. We're back in the Element Well studio. At 11.20, Caleb Sailors, multimedia journalist, Super Top Mississippi News, will be in the Element Well studio to round up the news from across the great state of Mississippi over the prior week and also discuss the big headlines they're tracking for next week. Transportation Commissioner Willie Simmons joins middays at 12.05 today. Looking forward to those discussions. So let's see, any plans on having a guest on to discuss nurse practitioners being independent of a physician? Man, we've talked about this a lot. Have we not, Rhino, since this has been a debatable issue? And it has been for a while. So I really can't say. Um, uh, every now and then, I guess, uh, as Rhino knows, we uh, we like to uh, kind of uh, advise the guest scheduling process here on middays. And Rhino and I, honestly, are not the schedulers. There is a full-time content director, and I'm telling you, it's a full-time job to schedule guests, as Rhino well knows. I mean, literally just to nail down two people to come on this program. Normal normal lineup is two, sometimes three. We have three today. But two of those are Super Talk folks in the studio here. But where I'm going with this is it can take as much as a day to line up the guests for the next day. Now, that actually happens about a week in advance, uh, generally speaking, but the content director handles both shows, uh, both being the statewide shows of Gallo and this show. And uh, you could schedule it right now for Monday, and an hour later, it'd be canceled. Not because they don't want to come on, because something else comes up that they weren't aware of, especially when you're trying to get folks on from the legislature and and, um, our congressional delegations. You have to work around their business schedules, of course. But I feel like this this is what I can say to uh, this uh, person on the text line here, that this is uh, an issue that we're certain to see some legislation on again. And when that happens... I would be uh, surprised if we don't have someone scheduled from the legislature and from policy advocates on both sides of this matter on the program. That's what's happened in the past. I think that's a, a fair analysis. Would you agree, Rhino? That's yeah, I done. mean, there's been at least one bill dropped on the matter, but it's still in committee. So at this point, we're waiting to see if anything happens in committee. If it gets out of committee, we would likely get the author Donnie Scoggin on. Okay. And, right, Representative Donnie Scoggin. So, as uh, you well know, if, if uh, you spend any time in the Capitol, there are uh, policy advocates and lobbyists that come down on both sides of this issue that are in the ears of the legislators. And that's the needle they're trying to thread here. Uh, th- this is a, it's a complicated matter, honestly, that uh, where you need input from folks in the field that are providing health care. Which, if I'm not mistaken, Representative Scoggin, when he's not in the Capitol working as a representative, is a nurse practitioner? You may be right about that. Uh, I, you know, I, I haven't really researched that. but And it's also fair to say that, that typically when uh, the Speaker or the Lieutenant Governor, when they uh, make committee assignments, and especially when they assign committee chair, 
yeah, they try to assign that that legislator to some committee where the subject matter is uh, something with which they have experience. They have some expertise in that. So, absolutely. Yeah, I'm looking at it uh, right now. He is a nurse practitioner. So, makes total sense. That's some, You're not surprised that he would, in fact, be involved in this matter. Um, yeah, so that's, I think, what we can expect. Let's see here. Uh, ben from Madison says... HB 821, sponsored by Rep. Scoggin, is the full practice authority for nurse practitioners. I fully support that legislation. Yeah, and that's, again, I, I would expect that from a nurse practitioner. I think it's fair to say, Rhino, most of them would like to see um, their authority expanded. And physicians, on the other hand, tend to be a little less favorable to it, is the way I would put it. So I mean, it depends. It really does, case-by-case case basis, who, who you speak to. And then it depends, okay, exactly what are you uh, wanting to allow, wanting to authorize the uh, nurse practitioners uh, to practice. Uh, I think it comes down to that. that. That gets a little nuanced. It gets a little complex. You know, in my experience in dealing with a nurse practitioner, um, I've been pleased with that. I haven't felt like that I was slighted in any way that uh, for the particular situation. And there's some there's some policy, some rules around uh, the nurse practitioner's work being reviewed by a, a partner, a physician. I don't remember all the, the complexities, but it's something to that effect. They're just not out on an island by themselves like a physician is that's certified as a medical doctor. Um, but... Certainly, when you think about just the challenge of the supply of of health care versus the demand for health care, that's a huge problem. It's a huge problem nationwide. It's a problem in our state for sure. And so more supply is a way to not only improve health care treatment and thus outcomes, but uh, also hopefully drive down costs. I mean, that's just a, a normal byproduct of the increase in supply. A, a big problem we have, of course, in our country, but in particular in the state of Mississippi, where it is dramatically pronounced, is just the amount of our population that have no health care coverage, but yet they still receive health care. They just don't pay for it, and the providers end up absorbing it. So... You get into really uh, detailed and extensive discussions about how to address that issue. We've talked about this extensively. I wrote a very long article. You can find it on the Supertalk website where I get into a lot of those details. Now, typically in the state of Mississippi, this issue always seems to be distilled down to one policy matter only, exclusively, and that is to or not to expand Medicaid. And and all Medicaid expansion, just a little uh, review, Medicaid expansion just simply means that the Medicaid program, which, of course, is operated by all 50 states, it is a jointly funded program uh, by the federal and state governments. Base Medicaid, traditional Medicaid, has a, a number of uh, coverage groups, makes the coverage available to the disabled, the blind, um, low-income elderly population, pregnant mothers. 
are pregnant, uh, those those that are pregnant. <laughs> I call them mothers because when they have that baby, they're going to be a mother. They may already have one in there, a mother, uh, but in this case, it would be it would be pregnant women. I'm not going to uh, placate the left rhino by calling them ple- pregnant people. I know that's their preferred way to refer to it. They're females. They're women. They're ladies. That's what they are. Men can get pregnant. I know that's a shock to the left that uh, believes they can, but they can't. So, uh, but that's the base Medicaid. I, I hope that was clear. Those coverage groups: blind, disabled, low-income, elderly, uh, pregnant women. Expansion, and there are some caretaker. I should say that there's a caretaker coverage group as well, um, and that could be anything from a parent to a person taking care of another person, but. The, the income thresholds on that are extremely low, like 45% of the federal poverty level, which would put you at about $5,000 a year, 5000 a year of income. So uh, I, I could be off. It may be more like $6,000 a year. I haven't checked the latest FPL numbers, but it's not a lot. Let's put it that way. So, um, But that's available now in the state of Mississippi and, and honestly, in every state. Expansion, which came about during the Affordable Care Act's passage in 2010, that extends Medicaid eligibility to able-bodied adults with an income below 138% of the federal poverty level, which, last I checked, is about 20000 bucks a year for an individual. They would be eligible for Medicaid benefits as an able-bodied adult. And the reason they typically are described as an able-bodied adult, it's to distinguish them from the disabled who already are eligible or the blind who are already eligible. And so this is a new coverage group. This was passed into law in 2010 in the Affordable Care Act. And because uh, of the Supreme Court case that determined that the mandate was fully legal, I get to that uh, discussion more after the break here on Middays. We're in the Element Well studio. Bring the stories that matter most to Mississippians. Gerard Gibbert, Middays with Gerard, Super Talk, Mississippi. in the Element Well studio, so continuing that discussion, uh, just a little background on this whole Medicaid expansion subject. The ACA's passed. It includes a provision. The goal, of course, of the ACA, more than anything, uh, was to achieve so-called universal coverage. That's been the goal primarily of Democrats for decades. And that that goes back um, even to the old Hillary Care proposal, which I remember, that finally got dropped because it scared the hell out of everybody. Oh, excuse me, by the way, for Lent, I gave up saying that word uh, and the other word, the D word, on the air for Lent. So I boo-booed there. I, I need to put a pot where I can contribute to it when I do that, a jar or something. So check me on that. It's just a habit. I apologize for that. That's what I gave up for Lent. Okay, so. Help me out with that, Rhino. <laughs> All right, so 
uh, yeah, they had this Hillary Care thing, and and Bill Clinton, he was going to be the president to get this this goal of universal care done, and they ultimately backed away from it because it wasn't received very positively. So, in comes Barack Obama, and he's got the trifecta. He's got a supermajority, filibuster-proof Senate, huge majority in the House, and he's sitting in the White House. And he essentially exhausted all of his political capital and virtually all his time and did the government, the federal government, between uh, when, he got, when he got seated and the Congress got seated in 2009, the election, November 2008, and then ultimately in March 2010, the Affordable Care Act passes. That's just before the midterms. And, of course, the House flipped, largely as a result of folks in districts, certain districts, not being happy with what was perceived to be the total government takeover of health care. Obamacare became a pejorative in many circles, although he actually said, did Barack Obama, he was proud of it. He was fine with it. You remember that, Rhino? I'm fine with my name being associated with that. So it passes. And it includes this requirement that all 50 states are going to expand Medicaid in order to maintain their participation, retain their participation in base Medicaid, traditional Medicaid. It goes to the Supreme Court. Lawsuits get filed. They make to the Supreme Court that contend that the individual mandate is unconstitutional, the mandate that you have to have insurance. And if you don't, you're going to pay a penalty. And the court ultimately ruled, nope, that's just a tax. A lot of people thought this thing's going to get struck down and the whole thing's going to unravel. The whole law is going to unravel. That didn't happen. The court upheld it, said, yep, the mandate's fine. But there was a, a, uh, an element of that ruling that's not widely known, which is the court, as part of its decision, said, you can't, federal government, mandate that all 50 states expand Medicaid to the able-bodied adult population with an income below 138 of the federal, percent of the federal poverty level. You can't do that as a condition for remaining in existing Medicaid. That was kind of a, a, a much lower profile, highlighted aspect of the ruling. But that's what happened. Thus, since then, 40 states have expanded. It's optional. Ten have not. Mississippi's one of those that has not um, expanded. And so here we are still dealing with problems in our state. And by the way, it's nationwide problems. There are lots of healthcare institutions, even prominent ones, that are struggling to make ends meet financially. I have never felt that expanding Medicaid is, as Rhino likes to say, the the silver bullet panacea that would fix that problem. And, And despite what you hear a lot in the public, this is not just contained among rural hospitals. Urban hospitals are losing money, too. They're struggling, too, across the country. It's not just in Mississippi. And it's not just those in the rural areas. It's those in the urban areas as well. I've shared on this program the review, my review of a number of the financial reports from some prominent hospitals in the state. There, Many are upside down that you wouldn't think they would be. Because the focus typically is on the rural providers, it's fair to say maybe their financial condition is worse just because of the demographics and the amount of uninsured care they provide. There's this other thing called Imtala. I got all the, this is all discussed, by the way, uh, in detail in the article I wrote. If you're interested, um, 
That's that's a, a bill, an act that was signed by President Ronald Reagan, 1986. And essentially what it says is, if you're a hospital and you're operating an emergency room and you provide, you participate in Medicare and Medicaid, which virtually everyone does, somebody shows up at your hospital in the ER and they can't pay for it, you've got to treat them. You've got to stabilize them. What's it called? What does it stand for, Rhino? The Emergency Medical Assistance, uh, I don't know, Treatment and Labor Act. I know the L is labor because if if a... Emergency Medical Treatment and Labor Act. Okay, there you go. So if a person shows up, a woman shows up pregnant, and in labor, that's why the labor were... Oh, no, you're going to trigger another 20 text from Jeff. <laughs> He's a, he is big time aggrieved today. We'll get to him after the break. More incoherent bloviating <laughs> from Jeff in Forest County coming up next. <laughs> we're, we're stepping aside. For a break on Middays, Fox News, Super Talk News next. Caleb Sailors at 1120. Stay with us. You're home for... And now... And now... The talk that keeps Mississippi talking. That's what I like to listen to. You're listening to Middays with Gerard Gibbert. Here on Super Talk Mississippi. We are back in the Element Well Studio. That's a little journey here on this Friday, y'all. I've been tracking the boys traveling around. It was Birmingham last night, another sold-out show. <laughs> so, um, wow, today, Rhino, <laughs> we got uh, we got a couple of them. We got one on the left <laughs> is uh, filling up our text line. We got one, I don't even know if I'd call it the right. I'd say it's almost outer space, honestly. Thomas, honestly, I, I, look, you're a smart guy, and I respect you, and I appreciate you, uh, you texting us, and I think you and I probably agree on a lot. But best I can tell, your solution is zero government, just none. And that, I think, I know that's there are a lot of people that do believe that that we should have just nothing, zero government. And if somebody could provide. Uh, a viable alternative to that? I'd certainly take a look at it. I've I've heard stuff, and it's not viable. It's not tenable. It's not practical. Um, but I'm I'm for that if they can. But right now, what I'm seeing is zero government, zero government. So, and that's not practical. That's not going to happen. Um, so, uh, Tom's of course believes Medicaid expansion is socialized medicine, but I guess then Tom, you believe Medicaid and Medicare are socialized medicine. That's okay. Social Security is is that too. It's socialized retirement. I guess you could say that roads and bridges and law enforcement and airports and and um, uh, gosh, everything else we have that that uh, we all collectively pay for, I guess you could call that socialized as well. I mean, that's the problem is that those terms, they get overused, I think, and misused a lot. 
And there, there's no consensus on what is socialism. There's no consensus, and it's widely misunderstood. There's no consensus on what is conservative. That's widely misunderstood. Everybody kind of, um, I, I, I guess, uh, commandeers the word, if you will, just latches on to those words, those terms, and they define it however they want. It's their view. If you don't believe me, you're just you're wrong. <laughs> That's kind of where we are in this country. And so, um, okay, so you oppose the growth of government, Thomas said, but did you oppose the state's application for waivers in the base Medicaid program? Because those waivers increase the scope of government by about $750 million a year in the state of Mississippi. That would be the growth of government. So the, the problem I have is that the people who profess to be these hardcore conservatives, I didn't hear a word about opposing that. In fact, most supported it. And and I think it was a good idea, honestly. Because if you know anything about the economic model of health care, you know that reimbursement through Medicaid and Medicare is, generally speaking, below cost. It's exacerbated in the state of Mississippi because our commercial coverage, our commercial reimbursement from commercial insurance companies. It's the lowest in the country. It's a big problem. And and you could say that that's a free market, and that's just where it lands, but it's about to put the hospitals out of business. Many of them in the state are experiencing financial difficulty. That's, that's no secret. The whole country is experiencing that. And the fundamental challenge, it's kind of a good and bad news story, is that we keep inventing more care, the catalog expands, it costs more money, and everybody wants it. I mean, honestly, if it could improve your health, save your life, well, sure you want it, but it costs money. So the good news is we got great innovators that keep inventing new therapies, new treatments, new, new drugs, uh, new procedures. and But making that available costs money. I talked to somebody yesterday that was with his wife that is undergoing treatment for breast cancer, and uh, and this is local. And there was some treatment that she was receiving a couple of days ago that insurance wasn't covering. He was paying for it out of pocket. Extremely expensive. Tens of thousands of dollars. And he just made a comment, you know, I know there's, it kind of bothered him. I know there's people in the room, in the waiting room, waiting for oncology treatment as well, that he knew couldn't afford that. And it was affecting their lives, their health, their ability to stay upside. And I I don't know. It's a, it's a complex ethical, moral, financial, legal, medical problem. It's more than just Medicaid expansion. That's the point. And, um, but unfortunately, the discussion always devolves down to that central issue, yes or no. And the people who say, we just need to do this and that fixes everything, I don't believe that. Made that very clear. And the people who said, no, this will make it worse, I don't necessarily believe that either. Neither side, to me, has made an effective case. And, and and, And I'm not saying the case can't be made, I'm just saying that it needs a lot more data. When I hear... 
the lieutenant governor saying that there's 230,000 people. That's an estimate. Nobody knows. Really, nobody knows. 230,000 people that would receive coverage if we expanded Medicaid. Nobody knows. I have asked a simple question uh, as this. How many people are presently working for companies that don't offer group coverage? How many of those are north of 50 employees? Because if they are, they got to pay penalties to the IRS. How many penalties are being paid in the state of Mississippi? Nobody can answer that. Okay, of those working for employers less than 50, how many just don't offer coverage because they just can't afford it? And they're not compelled to. You're over 50, by federal law, you're compelled to. You could argue that's that's socialism, Thomas. That's socialism. The government says if you got more than 50 employees, you got to offer coverage. i tell you something else that's brute force socialism is the medical loss ratio. And that regulates the profit of insurance companies. It says of every dollar you take in in premium, you got to pay out 80 cents. And if you don't, you've got to rebate that to your subscribers on a pro rata basis. That's been in effect since 2010. And by the way... Any pay over $500,000 to your CEO is not deductible for tax purposes. That's socialized medicine. That's a, There's no other industry that I'm aware of that has its profit regulated like that. None. They try to. Don't get me wrong. They want to. They, they try to implement every dang policy they can, whether it's taxes or regulations or or, heck, you got the, the president up there that's wanting to ban LNG exports. I heard this morning from a reputable source in the oil and gas industry, I've, I've never heard this before, that there's like enough LNG in the state of New York. Never heard this. Under the ground, the state of New York. To like power the country for 500 years or something insane like that. I never heard that. Now, it does require fracking. It's not easy to get to. But as you well know, the advances in fracking technology have been astronomical over the last 20 years. It's one of the reasons we've been able to produce so much more oil and gas without the price going up so ridiculously. We're way, we invented that technology, did they not? The Permian Basin, I believe, in Texas. The, the idea of fracking, that's where it came from. And all of a sudden, that expanded across the country. Pennsylvania has rich oil uh, oil. In uh, gas deposits as well, especially gas. But New York, LNG, had never heard that. We got a president that says, nope, can't do that anymore, because he's genuflecting at the climate change article. And I know I'm changing subjects. I'm just trying to talk about what is socialism. It's telling Uber workers, I'm sorry, you can't be a subcontractor or a 1099 worker. We got to protect you. You've got to be a full time employee and receive all the benefits full time employees do. Whether you want it or not, we're telling you, you got to do that. That's central planning control of socialism. The fact is, in healthcare, until we repeal MTALA, the Ronald Reagan law, that there, that has contributed more to the health care dilemma than anything else. I'm not saying it was necessarily a bad law. I'm just saying that find me another industry. Find me another industry that says you're going to have to provide services to that customer, in this case a patient, even if they don't pay by law. Find me another one. Give me another example where the government says you're going to deliver that service to that customer, and you're not going to get paid. Because that's what's happening right now. It's been going on since 1986, but it's exacerbated. And it, no doubt, is 
You know this, Rhino. You worked a little bit in the industry. It is ridiculously abused. Show up in the dang ER when you got a sniffle. Right? All the oh, time. Yeah. All the time. And that cost, just the encounter itself has a fixed cost associated with it. The treatment itself and the time you're there may be fairly low, but just the dealing with all that, accommodating, there's a fixed cost associated having the bed space and the waiting rooms and the nur- triage nurses and I'm all that. given a prescription for Dimatap. Right, exactly. That's what needs to be addressed. We're coming right back with Caleb Sailors, multimedia journalist, Super Top Mississippi News. The talk that keeps Mississippi talking. We're rolling. Hit it. Go. Play it. Middays with Gerard Gibbert on Super Talk Mississippi. J.T. Mitchell's favorite group there, right? The Doors. The Doors. Uh, we welcome to the Element Well Studio, Caleb Sailors, multimedia journalist, Super Talk Mississippi News. We'd much rather hear Jim Morrison's voice than that, Chiron. <laughs> but uh, and, and J.T., you know, he's a big Doors fan, he is, and man. he's not the only one in the newsroom, though. I'm okay. a big fan of the Doors I myself, too. so yeah. I, I always enjoy it. Rhino, thank you for the good introductions, <laughs> as always. <laughs> All right, so the governor got together with the commissioner of public safety, the mayor of Jackson, uh, Jackson uh, to discuss the out-of-control crime in our capital city. What came of that? So it, it, there were a lot of law enforcement um, agencies and leaders there. And so this happened on Tuesday. It's called Operation Unified. It's basically a surge of law enforcement that will be present in Jackson. And it's a multi-layered approach. You've got uh, federal authorities, state authorities, local authorities, down to city authorities that are all going to be working together, collaborating, communicating more effectively with one another to stop this you know surge of crime we've had in Jackson, you know. For the past three years, Jackson has had uh, triple-digit homicides, and it's been known as the homicide capital of the U.S. And so, per capita. And so leaders are trying to find a way to curb this crime. And kind of the straw that broke the camel's back was this viral video that surfaced a couple weeks ago of a man driving down Atkins Boulevard right off of I-55 North Frontage Road where the Quick Trip gas station is, leaning out the window of a vehicle, opening fire towards the gas station. And um, fortunately, last Friday, we've, we had an arrest. 22-year-old Kylan Russell was arrested for the shooting. Police confiscated multiple weapons. One was a Glock pistol that had been converted to operate like a machine gun. And that was, again, like the breaking point. And so the governor and all the other leaders held the press briefing on Tuesday at the location where that shooting took place. Actually, they held it in the parking lot of the old Cracker Barrel that recently shut down just to signify, like, we're not going to put up with this anymore in our city. And um, the governor spoke. Mayor Chokwe Lumumba of Jackson spoke. Uh, Jackson Police Chief Joseph Wade spoke. Commissioner Sean Tindall spoke. I mean, everybody was all in kind of in unison saying, you know, the violent crime in Jackson has gotten out of control. It skyrocketed beyond, not beyond repair, but beyond what we were able to handle right now. So it's going to take a surge of law enforcement from the federal agencies all the way down to the local ones to, you know, to stop this. And 
Look, the mayor said something that kind of stuck out to me. He said, you know, with this surge of police we're going to see in the city, though, I don't want the people of Jackson to feel more policed but more protected. Mm-hmm. Now, you can kind of take it or leave it how you feel about that, but he he and all the other leaders on there, you know, a lot of them have different political views, and he and the governor have sparred before, but it seemed like there was some kind of legitimate candor there to – fix this problem that we've seen in the capital city. Gerard, I'm a resident of Jackson. I live in the city of Jackson, and it's bad. The crime here has only gotten worse. And now, do I feel unsafe going home every day? No, absolutely not. But I've lived here my whole life. I'm used to what goes on. But the problem has kind of further exacerbated, and and something needs to be done. And so as a resident here, I'm I'm glad to see that there's going to be an increased presence of law enforcement and more communication. But it's also sad when you see these crimes committed and – people are at large on the run, not getting caught. And so it's good to see that there's going to be a multifaceted approach to handling this. I got to tell you, I was a little surprised that uh, the mayor who has uh, seemingly resisted any sort of involvement from the state Mm -hmm. uh, in addressing the the crime and just other issues, water, et cetera, in the city of Jackson. What, What was his attitude towards all this, do you think? I mean, did he say I mean on, on the on the surface, he seemed to be in support of, you know, he, he was very much amplifying the work the Jackson Police Department does. He wanted to make it a mission to praise what's already being done in Jackson. And I'm, I don't think he was begrudgingly going along with, oh, well, I've got to do this because it makes me look better. That may may or may not be the case. I'm not accusing him of that. However, he did appear to be genuinely concerned about the crime in Jackson. And, like, his back may have been against the wall. And, like, there's there's nothing else we can do about this. We have to solve this issue that's just constantly recurring in the city yeah. of Jackson. And so I asked uh, – I was there at the press briefing. I asked both the um, the governor, the mayor, and the police chief about youth crime. You know, we've seen – a lot of a lot of headlines. I've written a lot of stories about crimes that are committed in the city of Jackson by juveniles. I mean, just last week we wrote a story about a 16-year-old that was charged with capital murder. Like, this is crazy. Yeah. And um, the governor and mayor kind of agreed that it's best to have these kids or youth in the city of Jackson put in facilities, not like locked up, but have them in recreational facilities where they're playing sports, where they're yeah. doing things that keep them away from committing crimes and the mayor said something to me that was interesting he said he'll be unveiling a plan i think it came together by local um, faith leaders church leaders pastors etc he's going to present an idea to the city council he details are very sparse he couldn't get into the minutia of it but as a way to flood the youth population of jackson with more positive influences than negative influences we'll see if that comes to fruition we'll see what that looks like but you know it'll be nice to see kids playing sports and you know, having clubs and activities to go to rather than joining gangs and committing crimes. Well, hopefully. All right. What about the continuing saga that is the name change of <laughs> MUW? All right. Winbridge State University of Mississippi is the name that the Mississippi University of Women's uh, President Nora Miller and company have submitted to the state legislature for approval. This follows, you know, the W as it's commonly known, as is they recently submitted a name of um, Mississippi Brightwell University, and that was immediately met with flack. It was like, one, that wasn't a name that you guys proposed at first. That wasn't something we were considering. We don't like this. I mean, I, I, I did not see any positive feedback on that name. So I, I give a lot of respect to the president and her team for saying, okay, we're going to listen to our constituents. We're going to listen to our people. We'll take a step back and propose this new name. Haven't seen the pushback from the new name as I have, as I did with Brightwell. That was, that was bad. There was a lot of flags surrounding that. So this new one, though, 
Winbridge comes from the old English word for the letter W. I didn't know that until recently discovering that. And then they wanted the, the bridge at the end of it to kind of bridge and connect the, you know, the historic past of the university, tie it together to the present, gotcha. and lead to the future. A lot of explaining there. Yeah, a lot of ex- explaining, but the legislature will consider that. I don't see any reason for them not to approve it. And mm. so that might be the new name of the W, we'll but they weren't, but they were adamant about keeping the W, keeping yep. the letter. You know, that's what they're coined as. And yeah, But, you know, the W, Mississippi University for Women could kind of steer away a lot of male applicants from going there. But the university is co-educational. It was made that way by a Supreme Court decision in 1982. And then they implemented male sports in 2017. So... I can understand, like, being a baseball player at the W, not wanting to be a male baseball player for the Mississippi University for Women, but a name change would probably make them feel a little more comfortable in that realm. The uh, interesting squatted vehicle legislation, I believe Representative Fred Shanks was on with Mr. Gallo earlier this week discussing this. What about that? What's a squatted vehicle, first of all? What's that? Our friend friend Representative Fred Shanks stirred up a lot of controversy here, good and bad. But um, squatted vehicles are those whose front ends are raised four or more inches above the back end. So it looks like the vehicle's kind of like on a 45-degree axis, and it's... Like about to shoot off into space or somewhere, and they're very dangerous. And Fred Shanks, he said that he drove one of these, test drove it in a lot that was empty, and was like, you can't see, you can't see for a great distance what's underneath you, what's going on. It's not safe. And he's trying to have these outlawed in Mississippi. Um, this kind of, first of all, North Carolina was the first state to ban these. The vehicles are known as the Carolina Squat. Okay. Um, and he's following their lead. In early January, we had a six-year-old girl that was killed in her driveway of her Smith County home by one of these vehicles. They pose a lot of danger, and they, and to my, in my opinion, they just look tacky too. Yeah. But you can't you can't legislate tacky looks, but they do they do pose a safety risk. Um, a lot of experts have agreed there. A lot of manufacturing experts have agreed, and you are altering the way the vehicle is manufactured too, and elevating the suspension and and. Representative Shanks is like, yeah, no, this is not the best idea to have these on the road. Finally, opening day, college baseball. Well, before we get to college baseball real yep. quick, we did have legislative deadlines. Oh. Wednesday was the deadline for bills to be drafted, and then Monday is the deadline for um, those bills to be introduced. Yep. And so just wanted to get that out there for Thank our you. listening audience to understand that, you know, if bills have not been drafted by Wednesday, they're nullified, they're no more, and if they're not introduced by Monday, then no more. So baseball. What a wonderful time of year for Mississippi. wasn't as great of a time last year for Ole Miss and Mississippi State, but they're looking to wipe the slate clean. Mississippi State will open their season today against Air Force at 4 p.m. It's a three-game series that will end on Sunday. Starkville, right? In Starkville, yes, correct, at Duty Mm -hmm. Noble Field. Southern Miss will be at the Pete. They'll open against Marist, which is out of New York, 4 p.m., three-game series. Ole Miss, on the other hand, traveled to the opposite end of the country, to Hawaii. And, guys, get your coffee ready. It's going to be a late first pitch, 1035 first pitch. And that's the only game that will be televised of that four-game series. So, get you're ready for baseball. Get ready. And Ole Miss will only have their pinstripes and navy blue uniforms available. That information was made available to me earlier this week. Yeah. I saw that, and they've got a new cream jersey, too, Got a cream jersey. I'm not sure when that will be unveiled, but they will wear it to cream with a navy blue Rebels across the chest. Gotcha. All right, Caleb Sailors, everyone, giving us an update there. Always good to see and talk to you, Caleb. Thanks for coming in. Yep, coming right back, folks. Middays has got half an hour left in Hour 2 of the program. And uh, when we start Hour 3, it's Transportation Commissioner Willie Simmons. Stay with us.
Everybody ready? I'm ready. Ready here. Middays with Gerard Gibbert on Super Talk Mississippi. We're back in the Element Well studio today on In a Mississippi Minute with Steve Azar. You'll hear another interview with former pro wrestlers Ray Lloyd and Luther Biggs, plus Ernest Big Cat Miller, as they talk about going from the ring to movies. In a Mississippi Minute with Steve Azar is presented by Superior Catfish. Remember, there is Superior Catfish, then there's... Catfished, and there is superior catfish, my bad. It's U.S. farm-raised catfish with homegrown flavor. Ask for it by name at your favorite store or restaurant. Go to superiorcatfish.com for more info. The C Spire text line, 601-879-4395 on the C Spire text line. Mike in uh, Collinsville. I think if our citizens saw our government reduce frivolous spending, they would more easily accept changes to Social Security. I also think we should look at doing away with some benefits without reducing true retirement benefits. One thing we could do is eliminate benefits to children who were paid just because their parents or adoptive parent retires and begins Social Security. Not true, Mike. It's not. There's no such benefits. Um, those are for survive, survivors uh, f- uh, and benefits for the retiree spouse and children it's uh, it's not exactly how it works there. So, and that was in cha- a change made, by the way, in 1939. 1956 is when disability benefits were added. By the way, along the way, the contribution by the uh, employer and employee was increased. Ostensibly, it was thought at the time to cover those additional benefits. The fundamental problem is... People live longer. They draw more benefits out. We got fewer people working, paying in. It's a pay-as-you-go system. Back in the 60s, it was five workers for every beneficiary, person receiving benefits. Now, it's less than two, round two. So it's more than halved since then. And and that's just because our our demographics have changed. We have a lot a lot of people that are reaching retirement age. We're not propagating as much. We don't have as many people relative to retirees and and, uh, those receiving benefits in the workforce. It's the same problem with PERS. Same issue there. It's all all based on those estimates, those projections of how many people are paying in, how many people are taking out. And you, you, um, you project contributions and and income from investments based on that estimate. And when you fall short of that estimate, that causes a problem. In the case of Social Security, unfortunately, federal law does not allow Social Security funds to be invested in anything but what are called special bonds, S-bonds. The Treasury sells them. They got one customer, that's Social Security. So Social Security invests its surpluses, its money, in these S-bonds. Problem is, I think, Rhino, their average return is about 2.2%, something ridiculous since um, 
since that's been the, 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 the case, which is that's been law as far as I can remember since the program was created. It's never we've never allowed Social Security to invest in anything but these special issue Treasury bonds. Full faith and credit of the United States. Because guess what happens? If the U.S. doesn't have enough money to pay its bills, it just prints it. So essentially, these uh, six trillion or so of uh, S bonds held by Social Security that are redeemable to the United States Treasury, if the Treasury doesn't have enough cash to redeem, it just prints it or borrows it from selling other treasuries, which is crazy. We borrow money to pay the, the bills on the borrowed money. That's why we got $34 trillion in debt. So, um, these, these ben- and by the way, also, Mike, if you look at just the, the economics of the Social Security program, if you did eliminate those additional benefits, which, again, have been in place since 1939 and 1956, respectively, it, it wouldn't move the needle. I mean, it's, it's that's not a significant amount of outflow in the program. Um, it's it, remember, it's was originally designed to be insurance. That's really what it is. It's insurance for your retirement. And actually, back in 1935, when they created the program, it was if you make it to 65, if you live that long, because the average life expectancy was below 19, uh, excuse me, 65 in 1935. For men and women. I think 59 and 61, respectively, as I recall. So um, th- the idea was, well, if you happen to make it to 65, you probably got 10 years left in you, but a lot of people don't make it that long back then. So th- they felt like the program was just insurance against living that long. Well, now the vast majority of people live longer than that, and it's more than just this safety net insurance. It's considered retirement income. For, for retirees. So it's it's evolved uh, because we just live longer and it, all this sort of stuff wasn't contemplated in 1935. Uh, by the way, the combined unfunded liabilities of Social Security and Medicare are sitting at about $80 trillion right now. And unless some reforms are made, uh, the programs are not going to be able to fully pay benefits. In the case of Medicare, that's going to happen in 2028. Think about that. That's going to happen in the next Congress. It's going to happen. That, every projection you look at from experts who have studied Medicare's finances will tell you we're getting to a point where it won't be able to 100% pay its benefits. Now, when you contribute to Medicare, you're only actually paying into Part A, we added Part B, Part C, Part uh, Part B and Part C, I should say, um, without well, having Part D. That's for prescriptions. Part D was is, yeah, his prescriptions. Um, I'm thinking about Medicare Advantage. Is that C? I can't remember. But uh, B is hospitals. Uh, no, B is primary care. A is hospitalization. D is a prescription drug plan that was enacted under President uh, George W. Bush. Yeah, Advantage is under Part C. So Part C. Okay. So um, I just got C and D. Uh, mix up there. But nonetheless, we don't actually pay in to that. That's that's a big complaint from the Democrats. You passed this Part D prescription drug program, and you didn't provide for any funding for it. It's true. They're absolutely right. It's absolutely true. So all of that is contributing to uh, Medicare shortfalls. By the way, the average Medicare recipient, for every dollar they pay in, they get three out. Because most of your care, no secret, comes about when you're older. 
You get sicker. Your body breaks down. Don't work as much. And and so I think I've seen studies that say it's that last six months of life or so. Typically, there's more money spent on your care then than like your entire life leading up to that point, for a lot of people at least, um, when they get when they get uh, to that age. I mean, it depends on the illness, I guess, at that point that, that precedes your death. But sometimes that could be uh, extremely expensive. So, again, it's a complicated problem. Now, got to be honest, the, the uh, likely Republican nominee, President Donald Trump, says we're not touching Social Security and Medicare. Not touching it means it ain't going to be able to pay its bills. That's what it means. Because it's not politically popular. Nobody wants to touch it. Something else, by the way, you hear the president, the former president, say a lot. And Republicans, you know this, Rhino, say a lot. We're going to protect pre-existing conditions. That was because of Obamacare. That was implemented in the Affordable Care Act. I'm uh, a little surprised and taken aback that these hardcore Republicans now have have kind of seized on that popular reform. Popular reform and saying we're going to protect that. Well, that's a, that's an Obamacare reform. I, I'm and I'm not advocating one way or another for it. I'm just saying that that's just a fact. That's the truth. Now, should also point out that that only applies to the individual market. That has been in place in the group market since 1996. The same law that that uh, put uh, set HIPAA into place also included some significant reforms, and one of those included the um, prohibition against denial for pre-existing conditions in the group market, meaning insurance that you acquire from your employer. I remember prior to that, everybody we wanted to add to our coverage at my company, we had to get the insurance company to uh, agree to it. And you also could have a very elongated waiting period. They'd say, well, let's just see how this employee fares from a health perspective before we add them to your group. That's all true. All that's changed. Since or I think, then. couldn't you expedite that process with like a, a checkup or something? You could. You could go through a series of tests. But let's be honest. You know this. You know what the insurance companies want, right? They want companies with a bunch of young people working for them. They don't want any old sick people because that costs them more money. They go out of their way to find, go find me some companies that's got a bunch of uh, young people. That's just a fact. That is an absolute fact. And now all the insurance companies are hiring an army of physicians now to deal with the approval uh, of claims or rejection thereof. It's become a full-time job for providers now, virtually, somebody fighting with insurance companies to get claims approved. Because that's what happens. You go to the doctor, you present your insurance card. Okay, thank you. You may have a copay, a deductible or something. They file on your behalf. They send it to the insurance company. The insurance company says, no, nope, you didn't need to do that. We ain't paying. You know exactly what I'm talking about here, Rhino. And then they start that war just so they can get paid. We're coming right back in the Element Well studio. Days with Gerard. Good for America. Good for fans of justice and truth. Good for us. Super Talk Mississippi. This is what we stand for.
Welcome back, everyone. It's midday, Super Talk Mississippi. We thank you for uh, joining us. Final segment of hour two, and then we got Fox News Super Talk News, followed by Commissioner Willie Simmons, Central District Transportation Commissioner. Gerard, 99.999% of the illegals, this is Marion Greenwood over here, are on government assistance and don't pay any taxes because they are paid under the table and also get the earned income credit, don't pay taxes on groceries because they get food stamps. Several years ago, they were sending a lot of them back to where they came from. What happened to that? Well, most of that's not not actually right, uh, Mary. Most Actually, most illegals in this country um, – do have what's called a taxpayer identification number. And in fact, you cannot receive an earned income tax credit without one. Now, there are uh, lots of cyber criminals that steal Social Security numbers. That's a much, much, much bigger problem. It steals Social Security numbers and file tax returns to get EITCs. Um, and a lot of people discover, Rhino, you probably run into people say, yeah, I filed my tax return and found out the IRS said somebody already filed on it. You heard that before? Oh, yeah. Yeah. That's, or not only filed on it, got your return. Yeah, exactly. That's exactly right. So that's a much bigger problem. Uh, I, I'm not defending illegal immigration. In, in fact, I have denounced it. I've condemned it. I have um, been highly critical of the border, of uh, the situation of the border, and still believe that. But that's actually not correct. Um, look, we want people that come to this country to work and to assimilate and to be patriots and abide by our laws and contribute to society. That's why we celebrate legal immigration. That's right. But we well, I was excited to see on the social media, I think it was yesterday, maybe it was two days ago, Dolph Lundgren is now a United States citizen. How about that? Went through the process. Ivan Drago from Rocky <laughs> Four. So, um, well, and the, and the answer to why don't we return them where they came from is because the Biden administration doesn't want to. I mean, they, they've made that very clear that uh, they don't want to return to uh, or stay in Mexico program, the Title 42 and all that stuff. They, I mean, they just process them and disperse them into the country. Now, it is true that um, about $450 billion a year of taxpayer money uh, does, in fact, is used to to um, provide the very services they receive. The vast majority of that state and local, uh, not federal, by the way, uh, about twenty percent of it, according to uh, most scholarly estimates and economic uh, economists that study this issue. And also keep in mind that, for what it's worth, illegals are paying sales taxes, and uh, they buy stuff and they pay sales taxes. Um, they they certainly could be defrauding the uh, the SNAP program, but there are a lot of American citizens that defraud the SNAP program, the food the food stamps program as well. I mean, I've shared on the program before. There's annually annually, according to the the uh, nonpartisan or is it bipartisan CBO Congressional Budget Office. Okay, uh, two hundred and seventy billion a year of waste, fraud, and abuse in Medicare, Medicaid, and a host of other federal assistance programs. But the vast majority of it's in Medicaid. I mean, it it absolutely overshadows everything else. And that's by the way on the provider side, and it's on the the patient side. And it's because to a great extent the reimbursement's so dang low that they kind of work the system, if you will, just to make ends meet. Because just as Folks have pointed out, and I agree with them, every time there's an encounter between a provider and a patient under Medicaid and actually Medicare as well, they're losing money on that. 
And so a lot of folks will state that as a reason not to expand Medicaid. I get it. I agree. They shouldn't have to provide care to those people and, and do it on an upside-down financial basis. But there's also a whole bunch of people they provide care to that they're not getting any reimbursement. Zero. That's happening every single day in this country and in this state. So if you oppose Medicaid expansion, I would say, by definition, you should oppose base Medicaid because base Medicaid uh, causes our providers to lose money. This is why the governor, working with the Division of Medicaid, went to uh, Health and Human Services, CMS actually, and requested a waiver to increase the reimbursement under Medicaid, $750 million a year. Now, that... That's actually an expansion of the program. And by the way, though I agree with the program, I agree with the notion because its I don't think it's fair that the hospitals are, are implored and required by society to take care of all these people and not get paid adequately for it. I think that's a problem. And so this helps. It doesn't fully solve the problem, but it does help. But it is an expansion of federal spending. I mean, you just have to call it what it is, $750 a year roughly, that uh, comes out of federal uh, funds, and we have to go borrow money for that, have to print money for that, to be more precise. It's time for Fox News and Super Talk News. Uh, when we come back, it's the Transportation Commissioner for the Central District, Commissioner Willie Simmons. Stay with us. Welcome to the show that challenges you to think deeply deeply. and look beyond political posturing. You're listening to Middays with Gerard Gibbert here on Super Talk Mississippi. Welcome back, everyone. It's the afternoon portion of Middays. is now live from the Element Well Studio on this Friday, y'all. Welcome to the program now. The Central District Transportation Commissioner, Commissioner Willie Simmons. Hey, Commissioner, good to see you again, sir. Good morning, Gerard. Thank you for having me. Yes, sir. Uh, uh, enjoyed your uh, talk this past week at the Madison County Business League and Foundation Transportation Update. You and Executive Director of the Department of Transportation, Brad White. Very informative. Really appreciate that, sir. Uh, give us a bit of an update uh, from the uh, Central District here. What's going on? Brad, again, let me thank you and the energy I've been in Madison County. We've done a lot of good things. Let me just start by saying having Brad White as our executive director and the 2,700 employees, uh, we own a pathway to doing great things, uh, thanks to the legislative body who has given us the largest budget that we have had, ever had, $1.4 billion. That, uh, with also the federal money that's coming down, which is about a billion dollars over a five year period. So those dollars have put us in a position of being able to get out of this maintenance. And that's what we've been doing over the past decade and a half, uh, not being able to build any capacity projects unless it was special funding from the federal government or the state legislature. But 
what we're doing now with the $450 million that the legislators gave us last year and the $35 million the year before, uh, that's put us in the position of going back to building capacity projects. Uh, here in the Central District or in the Shelby County, uh, we are moving towards completing full lane in Highway 19. Uh, we have the Flowers intersection in Warren County on 220 on 20 uh, that's in place. And we are currently looking at well, what we can do in addition to that on 20 over Big Spirit with the additional interchanges. That's the worst in the state of Mississippi and maybe the country. Yeah. Uh, Madison County is moving. Uh, the reunion and the uh, widening of Interstate 55, we're very pleased with the progress that we're making there. We'll put the reunion project on the LPA, which makes the Department of Transportation the lead energy in it. And we are also working in Rankin County to do the West Rankin Parkway and other projects there. So we're very pleased to have finished Highway 49 uh, last year and opened it up, uh, 200-plus uh, million dollar project, but one that is much needed and we're very pleased with. Yeah, so I, I'll just uh, give a little kudos uh, <laughs> on uh, certainly on that 49 stretch, I know, which took uh, a while uh, for construction, but man, that sure is nice and smooth and, and enjoyable now. It's completely changed that route dramatically, so appreciate that. Gerard, what was good about that one, the way in which it was designed and the way in which our staff worked it, uh, with all those businesses right on the right of way. Yeah. Uh, we didn't have to uproot many of those businesses and expanded the lane so that you can move now going toward the coast and into Florence, Mississippi much, much faster and safer. Yeah, no doubt about it. So one of the things you shared, just talking about inside the district here, that you shared uh, with us, uh, you and uh, Director White, uh, at this this uh, event we had in Madison, was the uh, the stretch in Warren County along I-20 uh, in, in, in need of, uh, I guess, renovation and uh, just upgrading a billion dollars. Is that right? To, to, uh, to fund that. You know, yes, that, that gets me into talking about what our needs are. Yeah, uh, okay. We're talking about $8 billion over a long period of time. We don't need all that money at one time, but when we look at the capacity projects to include Interstate 20, the off-ramps or interchanges, it's going to take coming from the river back over to Highway 27. Those interchanges to improve them, uh, we'll be looking at about a billion dollars just in that area to do that. And it's something we're going to have to do we're working with the federal government now to do an assessment to see just exactly how we're going to work that to make it safe and be able to move the customers and the cargo going through that area. Uh, that's just one area. When you start looking at Madison County uh, with Interstate 55, you're talking about another 150 or more million dollars as we look at what the needs are, especially when you see the growth that's going on in Madison County. Uh, with Nissan being there, Amazon, and then the most recent uh, project that was landed there, that's just going to add to the demands on Interstate 55 as well as Highway 463, 22, uh, 16, Highway 51. So we're in the planning mode as to how do we keep up with and build because we've been out of building capacity projects for so long. We're really behind the block, so to speak, and going to have to catch up uh, in order to keep our state growing. Yeah. So uh, the the message I heard on uh, this past Wednesday, uh, Commissioner, was that 
the uh, you and uh, the other commissioners and uh, Director White are, are looking for an additional source of funds to uh, to to cover the cost of both capacity and maintenance projects here in the state. That's what I heard, and I've I've heard yes, some yeah. su- just some suggestions along those lines. Perhaps earmark some of the sales tax revenue that currently, of course, gets shared between the municipalities and the state. Um, and, and maybe some other ideas as well. Is is that was that accurate? The way I I described that message I heard Wednesday. You you know I, I'm I'm rating you as a good spokesperson because you put on a good show every day in, in your communication and the way you were able to deliver. But you're a good listener also. You heard us exactly right uh, in what you just explained. Uh, we need uh, going back to capacity about eight billion dollars. We need somewhere in the neighborhood around $300 million a year to just help maintain what we have. So you can talk about $600 million for capacity and maintenance of our highways that are needed. Now, how we get there, uh, we the commissioner, and I'm so grateful to have Commissioner Busby and Commissioner Caldwell, uh, and we all three uh, see the same thing along with Brad and the staff and others uh, as to what those needs are. Uh, we have a three-year plan that we pull from our Vision 21, which is what the legislature passed in 2002, I believe it was. Uh, that plan, when we look at the capacity projects over the state that we have put in the three-year plan, we're talking about about an $8 billion need. Now, how do we get that money? Um, you know, there's different ways that you can look at it. Currently, we are dealing with a divergent tax, for the most part, coming from our fuel tax. Uh, it was put in in 1987, 18 cents per gallon. Now, we don't get all of that money coming to the Department of Transportation, but we haven't seen that change since 1987. Uh, the only thing that we have seen where we have gotten additional money uh, on a recurring basis is the lottery program that we put in during the special session in 2018. Uh, but also in that special session, uh, when we did the lottery and capped it at $80 million because we didn't think we was going to get over $50 million based upon what the experts was telling us. Right. The $80 million, and currently, uh, that fund is bringing in about $150 million where the rest of it goes to the Department of Education. But the divergent tax approach is a very good one. When we dealt with the lottery in 2018, we also created a program referred to as the Use Tax Divergent, where we are sending money back to the counties and municipalities and state aid. Well, I'm pleased to report to you on today, when I looked at the last report, uh, the payment that came in in January, and the state make payments to the county municipalities twice a year, January and July. Since 2020, the municipalities have received about $352 million in divergent taxes. The municipalities have received about 352 and state aid about $118 million. So when you look at that, we're talking about over $800 million since 2020 that have gone through the divergent tax back to the counties. The counties and municipalities are getting about 15% of that use tax diversion. What we are saying to the to the legislators and to others, give the Department of Transportation a formula also. And it could be between 15 and 25% of that divergent use tax because you have enough money left in that fund now that you could do that. And if you did that, uh, you can very well put us in receiving $250, $300 million a year. Wouldn't be any taxes raised. It would just be the money coming from the divergent taxes sent over to the Department of Transportation and put into our infrastructure fund at FDA. All 
Okay. But, of course, this would, this would be less revenue available in the general fund for general fund spending. Correct, Commissioner? Well, it wouldn't be available to be used in the general fund because you would have targeted in the same manner uh, that you're doing with the counties and municipalities. I got you. you got to remember that we have we have a holistic transportation system, and transportation doesn't start at the state highways nor end. So if we're going to utilize the divergent tax formula and we're using that yep. to direct money to the local government, we're saying let's look at doing the same thing at the state level and divert some of those use taxes to the Department of Transportation. I got you. Commissioner, always good to talk to you, sir, and uh, really appreciate uh, all your efforts there at the Department of Transportation, and I'm sure we'll be talking some more. Th- take care, sir. Thank you. You're right. Thank you so much. Look forward to seeing you. Yes, sir. We're coming right back, folks, in the Element Well studio. This program. Gerard Gibbert. Here we go. This is huge, huge, huge news. Huge, huge, huge news. Huge. You need to listen to this. Middays with Gerard. Super Talk, Mississippi. We are back in the Element Wealth Studio, Jack and Jack Town. So new in law enforcement push connected to new U.S. attorney, Democrat. Seems I remember Hearst, it would be Mike Hearst, former U.S. attorney, attempting to introduce a similar multi-level program to address high crime or coincidence, perhaps. I'm not sure. Mr. Hearst, of course, was on with uh, Paul Gallo this morning talking about uh, the out-of-control crime and also in the capital city in particular, and also sharing his thoughts and ideas on how to address that. I I think it just takes a will as much as anything to prosecute crime, uh, to charge criminals, and uh, to lock them up. And somehow we got to come up with something that serves as a deterrent. That's what you, you want. You want a deterrent to uh, the commission of crime, and that would uh, essentially encourage criminals not to, not to engage in crime. That's what you want to do is hopefully engender some degree of morality, if that's even possible. They certainly aren't getting that from the home because these people are they're being raised to be criminals, it seems like. Certainly not getting what they need in a home setting to uh, get them on the right path so they don't go down a path of of uh, wrongdoing and law-breaking and just being a menace to society. Well, that's the balance between deterrence and punishment. Right. Because they need, the punishment needs to be a deterrent to committing the crime. But if you are not deterred from committing the crime, the punishment needs to be fitting punishment for the crime. Agree. And, and especially such that you're not released in short order where you return to the streets and just return to committing crime again, which is with recidivism, as we know, is a huge problem. So, yeah. Jason Starkville says the war hot, uh, hog jets have been flying over Starkville today. I wonder where they're coming from. You think that's the the base there? Or a warthog? Is that... Uh, A-10. Yeah, A-10s. Those are uh, kind of scary looking. They're kind of... <laughs> 
they kind of would stoke a little fear in you, I would think. You, you see think? Those. Yeah. Tank busters, right, they call them. They carried missiles that could penetrate, blow up tanks. It's a pilot sitting in a bulletproof bathtub with wings. <laughs> oh, by the way, it has the meanest Gatling gun you can put on an aircraft bolted to the bottom of it, and it's it's designed in such a way to where it can't even expend spent cases because it might unbalance the plane. Yeah, exactly. There, uh, they just they kinda, built a plane around a gun. That's basically right. I mean, this thing sticks out of the like a tongue coming out of the front of the fuselage there, and the nose really is neat. So a friend just said it's likely because states play an air force today, opening day, and maybe that's why the warthogs are zooming around Starfleet. That's pretty neat. Thanks for telling us that. Well, let's see now. No Medicaid expansion for the last fourteen years, according to Rusty, has cost the state fourteen billion dollars and uh that that's based on estimates that if the state expanded medicaid the federal portion of that the federal government covers 90 percent of it in accordance with the law the federal funding match in medicaid expansion is estimated to tally up to one billion dollars a year annually with the state chipping in 100 to 150 million for its part that's that's what is uh, projected at least. So, my problem with this whole this whole debate is that I feel like we lack information. I've said that on the pro on the program before. I I uh, stated that in uh, the article I wrote that we need more information to make an informed decision. Such as when those who support Medicaid expansion say, "Yep, we just did that." That would uh, cure all the financial troubles being experienced by our hospitals. Yet, what I've asked for is a simple, what's called a pro forma financial statement. Let's take your existing financial statement. Take the last three years, just to kind of average it out. Let's take your last three years, and then assume Medicaid were expanded. How would that change your financial report, your financial picture, your financial performance? Instead of just saying, oh, yeah. Expand Medicaid, that fixes it. Well, and I've asked for that. And thus far, Rhino, I don't think anybody's produced that, submitted that. And now, it certainly may be a bit of a difficult task in that you'd have to know something about the income of your uninsured patients, of those patients who don't have any insurance. Would they have qualified for Medicaid expansion? You'd have to know their income, their, their personal profile, to determine if they'd be eligible under expansion. Um, and then you'd have to plug that into the model. I don't know how hard that is to figure out. I don't know that hospitals receive that kind of information. I don't know if somehow, blindly, they could provide some sort of information to the Department of Revenue that has that revenue, uh, that individual taxpayer information, their income, and supply that without breaching any privacy. And plug that into their models. I think that's a reasonable request just to see how would this truly affect it. Instead of just asserting, oh, yeah, let's just do this, and it means that it would have this financial impact at a, at a hospital-by-hospital basis. We know it would, in fact, likely draw about a billion dollars that we don't have from the federal government. We know that. Um just based on the number of uninsured we have and some information we have about their their demographics, their their particular situation. I did hear, however, the lieutenant governor, you, you probably know that by now, is 
has uh, come out and said that there's going to be a bill or that there perhaps already is a bill. Um, yeah, he announced it, that there's going to be a Senate Medicaid expansion bill. That's going to be dropped by Monday's deadline. So, um, you know, one of the things that he said, you may have heard it on our little our little news snippet, Super Talk News is um, talking about work requirements. There's two things that I heard him him state. The first thing is is this um, work requirement in order to be eligible to receive benefits. Well, the federal government has already struck down requests for that, and so what happened is under the Trump administration, they were issuing waivers. It does require a waiver, meaning to operate your Medicaid program with some sort of adjustments to it that are outside of what's in statute and law and regulations, you got to go to CMS, just like we did with these payment reforms. That was a waiver. So you, there's a process for it. You apply at the state, individual state level, for a waiver, some nuance, some, some um, alter, uh, alteration to your Medicaid program that the federal government says, okay, yeah, you can do that. It's a waiver. So, uh, there there were states that requested waivers to in, uh, institute impose uh, work requirements on their Medicaid programs. The Trump administration was issuing such waivers. Then the Biden administration comes along and says, "Nope, you can't do that. No work requirements." And then there was legislation that actually came out of the of the House uh, last year that would have done the same uh, at the federal level. And the and the Senate, of course, and the and the president said, "Nope, can't do that. We're not." Uh, we don't we don't support that. Thus, it didn't pass. So, bottom line is, I think that's a, a tall task for the lieutenant governor. That I'm not sure is going to uh, going to be approved by CMS. Second thing he said was, and he's right about this, that under current Medicaid, there's something called the Medicaid coverage gap, and all that really means is that a person makes too much money to qualify for our current. Medicaid that's available to able-bodied adults, that's that 45% rhino, the federal poverty level for caretakers and other situations. Not a lot of people fit into that category. That ain't a lot of money, six grand a year or so. But And then you got the Affordable Care Act, the so-called Obamacare exchanges, the marketplaces where you can go buy subsidized private coverage. There, uh, you're only available to, to purchase coverage in the exchange with and receive subsidies if your income is above 100% of the federal poverty level. So between that 45% and 100%, which is a situation in the states that have not expanded Medicaid, including Mississippi today, that's referred to as the Medicaid, it's actually not even Medicaid, it's referred to as the coverage gap. You could go Google it right now, folks, and go to the images selection under uh, the Google search tool, and you'll see a hundred charts that show, that depict this coverage gap. KFF, Kaiser Family Foundation, probably has the best depiction of it, the best graphic. But that's what the lieutenant governor's talking about. We got, And you've heard Mike Cheney talk about that on the program before. They make too much to qualify for Medicaid and not enough to qualify for the exchanges. Subsidies in the exchanges. That's the gap there. So I can't tell, based on those statements from the lieutenant governor, is he talking about so-called full Medicaid expansion, or is he talking about just expansion that would cover those in the gap? It, I'm not sure. I mean, based on saying, yeah, 230,000 people would be eligible for Medicaid, that's way more than just those that fallen into the gap. 
Uh, so I'm not sure what the point is. Maybe the point he's trying to make is, well, this is what we have, and this is why we have this, this coverage gap. This is what we currently have, and this is why we have these people that fall into this gap can't get coverage. So, again, we'll have to see the bill, see what that's all about. Uh, and, and there's some other statements about that he's made as well. But we're stepping aside uh, for a break right now on middays. we got more to talk about, 30 minutes left on the program from the Element Well Studio. Gerard Gibbert, going beyond the headlines, breaking down the stories that matter to Mississippi. Middays with Gerard on Super Talk Mississippi. In the Element Well Studio on the ceasefire text line, talking about the A10 warthogs apparently flying about in Starkville. Uh, we believe that's because Air Force is uh, in town playing the Mississippi State University Bulldogs on opening day for baseball at Duty Noble, and so they decided to bring in some A10 warthogs. They'll and fly over for the national anthem. I think that's cool. I really do. That's neat. Somebody said, it's fuel tank with wings and guns. That's about right, isn't it? Every time they consider retiring it, somebody somebody smart comes around and goes, we don't have anything to replace it. That's absolutely true. I mean, they, they were purpose-built, as I recall, specifically to fly at a lower altitude and take out um, artillery. They call them tank busters. They got oh, a, yeah. right. Don't they have a missile that they can fire or something they can fire? Or maybe it's that Gatling gun. Fairly but, certain their their main gun can penetrate most tanks. Well, when you look at that thing at certain angles. Okay. I mean. Well, the I don't know how big is the ordnance that it fires, but I know the <laughs> I know that that turret there that um, the that uh, sticks out. It looks like it's the General Electric GAU-8 Avenger is a 30-millimeter hydraulically driven seven-barrel Gatling-style autocannon. I mean, it it would disintegrate is what it does, what it shoots, right, because it's so fast. Designed to, quote, destroy a wide variety of ground targets. There you go. <laughs> that would be a tank. I mean, that's just what, isn't that right, what they called them? Um, a, sort of uh, the, the common slang <laughs> reference. Tank busters. That is so neat. And they and their engines have a distinctive sound, right? It's different. Kind of a low sort of tone relative to maybe a higher pitch that you get from, say, an F-16, F-18, or some of those kind of fighter. These aren't fighter planes. These are designed to find the enemy and their, their ground assets, as it says, and take them out. That Gatling gun. I mean, so that barrel looks like it's 10 feet, 15 feet sticking out there. What would you say, 30 Thirty millimeter. So the thing weighs six hundred and nineteen and a half pounds. It's nineteen feet ten and a half inches long. Okay, I said ten, twelve, nineteen. Oh my gosh! Well, let's see. 
a millimeter is like one and change an inch, right? I think, or th- thirty millimeters. Thirty millimeters is one point one eight one one inches. Okay, there you go, man. But but it's it's uh, spewing them out at a very high speed, and one behind about another. Four thousand rounds per minute. Okay, that's the deal. I mean, it's just it's a solid wall, right? Oh yeah, a very distinct sound when that dead gun starts going. <laughs> that's unbelievable. Yeah, close air support for ground troops on the uh, ceasefire tax line. How often do they means test current Medicaid recipients? That's all administered. This is recent Clarksdale administered at the state level, and it's part of the enrollment period. It's it's fairly frequently. It's um you know when you think about in Mississippi seven hundred fifty thousand or so. That's after we've been unwinding the program based on the the continuous coverage provision of uh, which was passed under uh, President Donald Trump twenty twenty continued in the affordable, uh, pardon me, the American Rescue Plan under Joe Biden, basically says once somebody's on the program, you can't disenroll them. That changed last last, uh, early summer or so when the federal government says, hey, that was a COVID rule, COVID's over, we don't need that anymore. And and so uh, the states have been busy disenrolling, I think, some 19, 20 million Medicaid had uh, exploded up to about 90 million. That's insane when you think about it. 90 million on Medicaid, and that uh, that that number has has been reduced by about 20 million since disenrollment has been taking place in Mississippi. We got up to uh, over 800,000, and I think right now we're down to under 800,000. I haven't looked at the latest data, but I believe that's we're, – we're, we're getting more in line with where we were before the COVID continuous enrollment provision. Again, that was signed off on by former President Donald Trump uh, during the COVID uh, 2020 CARES Act is where that came from. So uh, – yeah, it's it's a lot of folks that you whose income you have to check, and and not just their income, but other uh, eligibility requirements as well, such as uh, being blind or disabled. You should also know, though, that the vast majority, Reese, of uh, those enrolled in Medicaid, not only in Mississippi but nationwide, children, children, about four hundred thousand in the state of Mississippi. Uh, many of those live in households where the parents or parent is not eligible because they're able-bodied working adults, um, but the child is based on their income, which has a higher income threshold than does Medicaid expansion, the, the so-called able-bodied adult coverage group, um, and their children that are on Medicaid. I can tell you having two foster kids, which by law have to be enrolled in Medicaid, there are not a lot of providers, honestly, uh, Rhino. In my experience, think about uh, pediatricians and and just physicians for for children that are also also accept Medicaid. That's it's kind of hard to find, honestly. Um, and we tried our best, my wife and I did, to to get some sort of permission to um, put our foster kids under our, my group coverage. I was willing to pay for that. But federal law, it's a problem. And and it's it's really grounded in this idea that a foster child is not permanent, and on any given date and time, the foster parents can call the social worker and say, hey, come get these kids. And in that case, you can see how sticky that'd be if they're on 
the former foster parents' insurance. Thus, they're on they're covered by Medicaid. Still seems like it wouldn't take a whole lot of legalese to set it up to where they are covered under Medicaid and can be covered under a private insurance company. I'm with you. I tried, man. I really did. I didn't want the, the, them to be covered. It, and if for no other reason, just honestly for convenience, because we had to go whenever they had to go to the doctor, which fortunately they're young teenagers, weren't, wasn't very often, but even a dentist, I mean, which you need to go to just for regular checkups when you're a youth, it's just hard to find. Honestly, and it's kind of out of way. You know, it's not, man, can't we just go to the same dentist we all go to? And you can as long as you pay for it out of pocket. And I think I actually ended up doing that in some cases rather than deal with having to go to a Medicaid. Uh, but that's how that works. The A-10 was designed around the gun. Yeah, I believe that. That probably is true. I just sent you a picture on Twitter of a comparison of the size of the gun to a Volkswagen Beetle. It's a little bit mind-boggling. Look at that thing. I had no idea. That's like the whole flatbed truck, the whole length of it there, is it not? And then some, because it's sticking off the end of the bed. I see that. Plus, it's probably the only thing with all those wheels that could cart it around with all that weight. That is amazing. That may explain why those engines are so dang big, and they make that sound, that distinctive sound, that kind of low-pitched sound. Uh, well, the recoil of firing the gun yeah. actually has more force than the output of the engines. <laughs> so they have to fire it in bursts, or it slows down the craft a couple miles an hour. Wow. Warthogs have a, a very unique sound. Yes, this is on the ceasefire text line. It's very comforting to hear overhead when you're part of the ground force. I, I bet that's the case. Because you know the bad guys trying to take you out are about to get obliterated. <laughs> In all likelihood. And if you've ever seen any video of those things shooting at tanks, I mean, they do. They just they it, they disintegrate them. That's what they do. It's incredible. The nose gear is offset for the gun. It can't do a sustained burst without stalling. How about that? That's Ron from Ocean Springs. Well, you know, the Corsair, which was uh, flown in the Pacific um, Navy fighter, um, aircraft in the Pacific Theater during World War II that has that very distinctive kind of gull bent wing. Um, it's my understanding that was to give the prop clearance, to kind of raise the fuselage up a little bit because the engine was so dang big it swung a big prop. It was to give the prop ground clearance. So they kind of lifted it up and came up with that design. It's, it is pretty neat. See? My dad is on disability, and they gave him a $50 raise a month but cut his insurance. Ridiculous. Medicaid insurance. What do you mean by cut his insurance? What do you, what do you mean by that? The, um, yeah, 10 and a half feet long. Wow, that's incredible, the cannon itself. Basically a badass weapon for anything that comes along, says Kevin in Monticello. To Rhino's point, it's probably why they keep it around. Just, hey, you got anything any better? Because how long has that thing been out there? I remember from the Gulf War, it had been around before then. It may have been the first time it had seen combat. 25 years first or so? First flight was the 10th of May, 1972. Oh, I had no idea. Okay, my bad. It, it, in, it was introduced in October of 77 and has remained in service ever since. I had no idea. Although the last one manufactured was produced in 1984. 84. So we're still taking care of those bad boys. But they played a, a key role, right, in the Gulf conflicts. Oh, yeah. Coming right back, folks, with the final segment on Middays. We appreciate you joining us today.
Gerard Gibbert. He keeps his classified documents right where they belong. Inside a journey record jacket from the 1980s. Gerard Gibbert, Super Talk, Mississippi. Back in the Element Well studio, that would be the great Kenny Loggins. Golfers! Yep, from Caddyshack. Oh, man, what a fantastic... They kill all the golfers. They'll lock me up and throw away the key. <laughs> That's exactly right. Well, uh, we're at the final segment now, and then the weekend, of course, is uh, beyond us on the ceasefire. Text line, my brother was an Apache pilot. This is Chad and Van Cleve. We fought like cats and dogs growing up, but can you imagine the relief to hear that helicopter coming over your head? Proud of that boy. Man, yeah, of course, a, uh, a, a played a critical role in uh, the Vietnam War, uh, what the politicians like to call it, the Vietnam conflict. No, it was a war. It's what it was. Uh, yeah, I actually used to play golf, uh, Chad, with a friend that was uh, actually Apaches came after. I'm, I'm thinking about yeah, the, the Huey. The Hueys. My bad. Thinking about the Huey. Apaches came after that. Yeah, those were just they call them gunships, right? Yeah. The Hueys were more for transport. The Apaches were gunships. Uh, had all kinds of armaments and assets on them. So and very fast. Hueys were what you see usually when you see images, uh, video stuff of, of Vietnam. Those are the ones that would land in what they call an LZ, a landing zone. They'd let off the, the soldiers. Many of them wouldn't make it but a few feet after they jumped off those helicopters, off the skids sometimes, and then they'd go back, pick up another load. Or they'd come into an LZ and pick up the wounded and take them back uh, for treatment. But I had a friend who uh, that I used to play golf with years ago that, that served and was a Huey pilot. And everything he saw, I mean, it affected him. You know, he, he would um, occasionally discuss it, break down, just what you can imagine, what he saw. Just going that back and forth, back and forth like that. It's unbelievable. But, yeah, appreciate that text uh, for sure. Uh, what an asset. But they're flying around. That's why we're talking about the A-10 Warthog, the old tank buster, flying around up there in Starkville. We're here, and that's because Air Force is in town taking on the Mississippi State Bulldogs opening day. Uh, fly over at 4 o'clock, we're told, on the ceasefire text line. That'll be pretty cool. Man, that'll be really neat. The Cobra gunship was the attack helo. Okay. Uh, did not the At- Apaches also have some attack capabilities as well? I thought they did. Hmm. No danger zone for the A-10? <laughs> of course. Well, that was the F-14. The, the Tomcat. Oh, yeah, that's the F-14 from Top Gun, of course, yeah. The A-10, yeah, that wasn't a Top Gun. It wasn't fighter aircraft. It's not a fighter aircraft. Yeah, but Top Gun, of course, is learning how to fight in a jet. Is Social Security getting taxed now? Has been since 1984, uh, enacted under uh, President Ronald Reagan. That was because at the time the the program 
was uh, in trouble financially, and uh, they were looking for ways to shore up its finances and in taxing Social Security benefits. They're taxed differently than standard uh, income taxes. I can't remember the exact uh, the exact structure. There's something to do with twenty five thousand and thirty four thousand. I'd have to look it up. But I, I do remember that, and it's like 85% of the benefits, something to that effect. You looking at it? What does it say? I was just looking up the Cobra. Oh. Because the Cobra um, was the attack helicopter for Vietnam. Huey was the transport chopper. Oh, okay. Thank you. Gotcha. And then the Apache, Apache was the, the later iteration of the, the Cobra style, where it was the skinnier helicopter. Yeah. Gotcha. So, yeah, between thirty two and 44000 you may have to pay income tax on 50% of your benefit, more than 44000 85%. And by the way, that's all of your income. If all of your income comes in between thirty two and 44000 50% of your Social Security income only is taxable. If it's more than 44000 up to 85% of it is taxable. So it's not handled the way uh, standard um, income is for tax purposes is the way that works. The Apache will tear some stuff up, says uh, Chad and Van Cleve. Trust me, but uh, but my bro is flying a corporate jet these days. He's all right. That's cool. Uh, let's see here. Thomas uh, sent us a book on Medicaid, Medicaid expansion. Thomas, why don't you go down to the Capitol? We're just we're just talk show people. <laughs> go down to the Capitol and tell those legislators. Set them straight. Tell them what you want. But I don't think you're conservative. Because you, I know you hold yourself up to be one, unless you go down there and say, you've got to exit Medicaid right now. Get out of Medicaid. Also, discontinue participation in the Affordable Care Act exchanges. Do that as well. And also suggest they uh, discontinue Medicare above anything that puts Medicare at least in a deficit situation. And actually... It, to, to what your desire is, is to eliminate the government out of health care. That means you would support getting rid of Medicare altogether. There you go. We're out of here today, folks. We appreciate you so much uh, for joining us. Back with you again on Monday. Have a great weekend. Until then, stay safe and God bless everyone. Super Talk Mississippi Media Production.